Welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg. Today's guest, my friend Ali Michelle, a poet, a writer, a healer, a yoga teacher, a meditation teacher, an Instagram influencer. She's a published author. She has another book coming out towards the end of this year. And on this discussion, this conversation, we dive deep into all aspects of creativity. We discuss anxiety. We discuss fucking dogs barking in the background. Allie opens up about her previous experiences uh, as a child facing panic attacks. She talks about her creative process. She talks about writing. She talks about the importance of morning rituals. We talk about meditation. We talk about being brave and facing your fears and living your dreams. It's a very wide-ranging discussion about a variety of topics. And overall, it's just a really lovely conversation with a wise and enlightening individual. So enjoy the podcast. Take some notes. Send it to a friend. Shoot me a message if you have ideas or suggestions for future guests. And don't forget, you can follow Allie on Instagram at Allie Michelle with an extra L at the very end there for reasons that she will explain in the discussion. Enjoy. All right. We're totally having a podcast. We totally are. Alexandra Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Long distance love bombs. Yes. Dr. Love Bombs. Thank you. Dr. Lovedums, my yeah. I'm so excited to talk to you, and I feel like I should have started recording this maybe five minutes ago when you said <laughs> that you your desire in life is to be a jungle monk and that your poetry squeezes people by the balls even though they don't know what's happening. So, exactly. Yeah, beautiful. so you should have done that, but now there's no evidence that I ever said that. So. <laughs> no one will believe you. No one will believe me, I should say. They're like, hmm... Um, for people who do not know you, Allie Michelle, with the extra L, as you are in my phone, uh, who are you? What's your deal? What are you passionate about? Well, I'm consciousness existing in this flesh bag called Allie Michelle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just straight, straight into the profound truths. Give it to you straight. Um, yeah. I love poetry. It helps me make sense of a nonsensical world. So I have a poetry collection coming out called The Rose That Blooms in the Night. Um, mm. and it's actually available now, but it's split into parts dusk and dawn because it's kind of about like when that external source of light leaves your life, how do you bloom from within? How do you find the strength it takes to be soft? Um, so I love poetry. I love yoga, movement, dance, um, any, anything that allows me to feel freedom within my body and human connection, you know, however, however that looks. I love deep, interesting conversations with strange people. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I as well. That's essentially one of the reasons I started the podcast was first to just connect with my friends. And then I realized when I kind of got to the end of that list, or not the end, I'm not, I'm not quite at the end yet. But then I'm like, oh, I have an excuse to just like reach out and talk to anybody that I feel like connecting with. Oh, no, I, I swear I closed the app. How do I, how do I fix this? Are you getting a text message? You know how it has it on the computer? Oh, I removed the app entirely. We're good now. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you, you, you just said something really interesting that I loved, which was the strength to be soft. Is that what you said? Yeah, find the strength it takes to be soft. So that's the crux of your new book, 
and most of your poetry i i'm projecting from what i've read so like how do you how do you do that why is it important well i think we're just so programmed to think the opposite that it's like almost to be apathetic is to be strong in a sense like mm. uh, to just go, 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 never stop and sit in stillness, never be soft, never be the person who cares more, never stick your neck out and remove your rib cage and actually just be heart forward in life. And so it's like very counterintuitive because no one really enjoys true vulnerability. And there's a difference now, like vulnerability got a great publicist. So now there's like self-disclosure <laughs> vulnerability where people are like, ah, I'm sharing this caption and I'm vulnerable. And it's like, no, vulnerability is like you feel it. You feel exposed from the inside out. Um, but that's the only place that genuine connection and depth can occur. So I think it's learning to reprogram and rewire ourselves to kind of do the hard thing because it's oftentimes the right thing. Mm. And so how do you do that? Like, how do you consciously decide to do the hard thing when you know it's going to be uncomfortable? Like, do you have a process for that? Kind of. Like, um, for example, I recently went to this wedding and I knew no one. Um, I knew the bride. That was literally it. Um, and as an introvert, that was a lot of social anxiety for me. So I had to do the hard thing in that situation, which was walk up to people, introduce myself, ask like interesting questions and, um, and breathe through it. Breathe through knowing like no one's going to die from rejection. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Even though it feels like it before we get rejected. Why does it feel like a tiger is going to eat us when we <laughs> it's like the same level of fear um so i think it's living in this stretch zone you know you have like your comfort zone your stretch mm -hmm. zone and then like just the other zone which entails like wingsuit flying and, and leaping off cliffs without parachutes and things like that the stretch zone is like living in the uncomfortable space where you mm -hmm. can Kind of play the observer which is essentially what we do in meditation right we're just watching ourselves so if you look at your life like a classroom and moment to moment these are the perfect opportunities instead of circumstances for you to learn um, then you either have the choice to learn and allow yourself to kind of be exposed and be uncomfortable or to just continue playing out the same story with different faces and places and yeah mm. the way i've described that is the edge of like staying on the edge and i have this like text message with a couple of friends we've called it team edge walkers uh, of like staying on the edge there and um on the edge is that exciting terrifying place whereby you can't really predict how the next step will go but you feel very alive right and you feel like for me at least that's where the magic lives and that's where the aliveness is hiding is that edge and it sounds like a similar vibe from what you're describing of that uh, that conscious decision to, to put yourself in an uncomfortable place i love the edge actually do you know hunter s thompson the writer i've heard of him yes yes yeah. <laughs> he's a great writer um yeah. but he had a quote like that like the only people who know where the edge is is the ones who have gone over it oh yes yeah, yeah. i don't want to do that although no. although there's something to be said about that because if you uh, what i've found at least in my own experience is I tell myself I'm on the edge, but I'm really like six inches from the edge or like two feet from the edge where I can like see the edge, but I'm not actually on the edge. Right. And that for me is like a really tricky way for the ego to convince me to stay more comfortable than I actually should be. So how do you, how do you do that? Like, how do you put yourself in that place time and time again? 
Yeah, it's it's moment to moment. And the thing is, is your edge will continue to move out further and further the more mm. you grow and learn, like you find you have a new edge now. And what was once terrifyingly uncomfortable is now your comfort zone. Yeah, um, normal. Yeah, it, it becomes normal. So I think it's keeping your shadow in front of you where you can see it and staying out ahead of yourself. And I believe that that happens through practices of awareness, whether it be meditation or journaling, um, but really training yourself to be the conscious observer in your life, because there's not one specific way. I think the opportunities to live on the edge look different for everyone, mm. depending on what setting that they're in. So you really have to be aware of like, where's my edge in this moment? Yeah. And that's such an important truth that is, often not discussed, at least in my opinion, that um, what might be an edge for me is very easy and simplistic for the rest of society even. And what might be the edge for you is very different than all of your friends or family, right? And coming to grips with that and being okay with it. So for me, for example, last year, I realized that one of my edges was stability and staying in one place, like literally living in one location for more than three months. That was my edge. And for, for most people, I think that just feels totally normal. But I realized that I was so used to the chaos and the travel and the experiences that it felt very confronting to like sign a lease, for example. Well, good on you because three weeks would be my edge in the same <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're kind of similar spirits in that way. It, and before we started recording, you were saying you're going to New York for a workshop and then off to Bali for a month to lead a retreat. Yeah, I remember the last time I came back from Bali, um, you asked how I was adjusting back to LA. I was like, I don't know. And you said something interesting. You were like, I try and keep Bali inside of me, mm. even in LA, like that energy. And I think that's so beautiful is to kind of keep those powerful experiences as a part of your heart, no matter where you are. Mm. Um, what's your edge right now? Like what's, a, what's an expansion place that you're leaning into? Um, I'm, I'm taking huge leaps of faith with, um, a particular project that I'm working on right now. Um, I'm starting a sustainable activewear line called Poetry in Motion. It's really cool. They actually, um, the fishermen go into the ocean and they pull out the nets that are harming the marine life and they detoxify it and somehow turn it into activewear. It's really cool. Um, activewear, like, like, what does that mean for a, like, you know, yoga clothes, leggings, sports bras, um, uh, yes. Yeah. So they so, take used fishing nets and turn them into sports bras. Pretty much in leggings. And so I designed this brand. Um, it's with really sustainable materials. But I mean, starting a clothing company is a huge investment, um, both time, money, emotionally. And it also requires a lot of showing up and structure. And I'm not a very structured person. You know, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, like, I like freedom. Um, and this is going to require a lot of me. So that's my, my edge, my stretch zone right now is making a long-term commitment, um, mm. being, being willing to do it regardless of failure, regardless of whatever fear comes into my mind and just taking one step at a time. And so what was it that made you decide to do this thing? Honestly, I got really inspired when I started learning about fast fashion and sustainability and the environment and, um, and recognizing like how little options there are for sustainable clothing so I kind of just got excited and started designing and dreaming it up and um, found the amazing material and got really excited about that so it's more so for the earth I think 
living in Hawaii really put me back in touch with that connection to the earth because I grew up in LA. So I didn't have that direct side of like, oh, I can actually see the reef that's being harmed. I can actually see the turtles with the um, like plastic bottle cans around their neck. And like, it's just different when you see it face to face. There's no disconnect. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah. we also forget that we, we can do so much as individuals to impact the planet. And we often overlook the power of, of one person taking, taking action or making a decision to, to do life a different way. Right. And so just your process of starting a clothing line might inspire countless other people to be brave enough to start the thing that they want to do. And one of those things might change the world. And, and that's really beautiful. I love that. When's that coming out or how can we, how can I support that? Cause my background's in conservation sustainability. Like I worked for years on the great barrier reef and that's my jam. Like, I didn't know that. yeah, yeah. That was like my former life. I was a government employee, uh, in the South Pacific as well. I lived in American Samoa for a couple of years, Thailand. Yeah, I'm a big coral reef nerd for sure. I love that. We'll have to have coral reef nerd sessions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to dork out on that stuff for sure. Yeah. Um, awesome. I mean, it comes out, I want to say it comes out in fall, but to be honest, manufacturing things in Bali, they're on a whole different time thing than me. Island time. They're on island time. So ideally it'll be out in fall. I think before 2020 for sure, but it's called poetry in motion. So it's great. Yeah. And what else you, uh, I guess we have to talk about writing because I mean, that's what you do. You're, you're a poet, you're a writer, you've put out a book, you've got another book coming out. What do you, what are your thoughts? Do you want to vibe on, on art and writing or what are you feeling? Let's do it. I mean, you are an amazing writer as well. So I'm excited to hear your opinion Thanks. on the subject. Yeah. So I guess the standard sort of thing is, you know, how did you get into this? Because your Instagram account is large. You got a couple people following you now. How does, how does that feel? I didn't realize it was large. This is going to sound so stupid until last year. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, I didn't understand the impact of it. I didn't really get what it was. Mm. Um, I don't think I got it until I went to New Zealand and, um, and everyone was kind of freaking out because you live in LA and like you walk down the street and there's like freaking Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie. It's like, yeah, I just I saw um, the dude from outcast at um, cafe gratitude the other night. Yeah. See, like, yeah. <laughs> it was like, Oh yeah, there's Andre 3000. Cool. Cool. You yeah. know, um, so I think when I figured it out, I, I panicked a little bit, I'm not going to lie. So I was like, oh, there's actually this many people paying attention to what I'm saying. But so um, what happened in New Zealand? Did you get recognized or something? Um, it's just, it's different in New Zealand because it's like the bottom of the world. And so mm. there's not that many influencers out there. Like their community is super small. Um, so when I got there and most of them had like 30K, 50K, whatever it was, um, like really good followings, but they were freaking out over people who are just like my friends um, with similar followings. And they're like, oh, that's my idol. That's my dream. And I was like, oh my God, this is actually a thing. Like people actually look up to people. <laughs> so, um, but I'm happy that I was, was blissfully ignorant for so long because I wasn't writing for them. Mm. Um, I was just writing to kind of figure out my experiences. That's a really good entry point into the creative process. So because I get asked this as well, you know, do you write for you or do you write for the audience? 
right? Like now that you have a following and the way that I approach it is, is kind of like a compromise in a way of, I know that I could jot off some little fortune cookie things and get like tons of likes and comments, you know, and like I could write a, a book of fortune cookies in like an hour, um, but that doesn't fulfill me. And on the other side, like I could happily dork out on the philosophy of truth for, for an hour, but that probably won't be very well read. And so the way I approach it is to try to create something that I feel proud of, that is fun, that is like high energy, that I also think will be communicated in a way that can help people make them laugh, make them feel, make them think. What's, what's your take on it? Well, first of all, I want to say I love your stuff because I would recognize it if I saw it and there was no name tag under it. Like you have a very specific voice. Um, and I appreciate that it's not just sound bites because there's so many fortune cookie sound bites out there. Not that it's mm -hmm. bad. I'm sure they're very mm -hmm. like helpful to people. Mm -hmm. uh, but I appreciate it because it's, it's you know. not my jam. Like the fortune cookie thing is like not my jam. But I, but I thank you for that compliment. Yeah, and it and it does really well numbers wise, but then it's like what I think that goes back to why do you write in the first place? Mm. Um, so to answer your question, I can't write for them because then I'm not I lose the intimacy of my relationship with with life itself, whatever you want to call it, life, the universe, God, whatever you think of it as. Um, because I'm writing more so to, like I said, make sense of my experiences. Mm. So I'll draw on moments of inspiration and kind of like turn the lesson I learned from that into a poem. But it's a very um, sacred thing where I have to tell myself like, no one is going to read this. Um, now, whether or not I post it depends on like, do I think this will actually help people or be of service or um, have some sort of positive impact on their lives or at least make them question their reality a little bit. Um, but the initial writing process, I can't do it for them or else I'll just kind of sound like a fortune cookie. Yeah. So do you have like a, a catalog or a folder of stuff that's been written, but just not shared? Yeah. There's so much in my journal that I'm like, no one should see this. And some of it's garbage and some of it I love. And I'm like, you know, maybe one day. Yeah. Maybe one. it's like the, uh, what do they call it? Like on an album, it's like the, the cut, the album or the songs that didn't make the cut or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause I'm the same. I've got hundreds, like hundreds of things that, uh, that I think at the time I started were really profound. And then when it came to like share it with another human, I'm like, nah, I don't know. I don't think so. But sorry, were you gonna say something? Oh, I was just gonna say like, it's interesting the way Instagram has completely changed poetry. Cause before you could put all those poems that were a little more terrifying to share into a book because it would be released into the world and then you wouldn't get like that literally a second later feedback. Whereas mm -hmm. Instagram, you write a poem right away. You're seeing people's comments and how can it not subconsciously change the way that you write and the way that you share with the world. Um, and because it's instant, I feel like at least for me, I have to train myself to work on the writing more and like really um, kind of hone and perfect it instead of just like, throwing my rough draft up on Instagram. Mm. And so yeah. how do you balance the, the feedback from people that read your stuff? I mean, a lot of it, I have to, to not really, I have to try to not be affected by it either way, whether they praise me, whether they reject me, because the praise is not going to help me grow. And the rejection makes me feel like a garbage human being. 
So <laughs> neither of which is quite helpful. So I respond to everyone, but um, again, when I read people like Hafiz and Khalil Gibran and like all these incredible poets I look up to, I know that they weren't really writing for anyone else. They were kind of just channeling whatever wisdom came through. Yeah. It's so surreal to think that those, those humans back in the day were just, you know, scrolling some ink down on paper. And nowadays we literally have all of their poems in our pockets and just wandering around and we can pull them up at any time. Yeah. Like what makes art last that long? Oh, well, I'm curious about your answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, good question. You, you answer and then I'll answer. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think um, my friend Dakota says any poem that's good is one that's written honestly. Mm. And I think their poetry was so honest. Like they reached into the bottom of their fucking soul and came back up with some poems. Mm. And so it almost like brings us to that place and helps us like walk inside of ourselves and be seen and, and heard in a way that we wouldn't have been able to put into words. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the word that came through for me was truth of like heart truth though. Uh, and so a lot of those old poems, I think that have lasted or, or works of art in general, books, etc., songs, they evoke some kind of feeling in us that feels real, right? It, it's almost like a, it's like a piggyback ride to like feeling something that we didn't know was in us or, or a, a secret route into truth. And and I think the way that they did that was just being, um, they're communicating very eloquently and beautifully, of course, but they're also just being real, which is the same nowadays. You'll read something that's raw, for example, like raw and maybe like not super well written, but it's still like really powerful, and really good and really evocative. And I think, I think that anytime that we're expressing our truth in a vulnerable way, it connects with people. And that connection lasts. No, absolutely. You see that, you know, it's like how, like you said, how do they stand the test of time? They were expressing their truth. Mm. Um, and I see that a lot with some tagline poetry. Sometimes I scroll past it. I'm like, okay. And sometimes it hits me in the gut, you know, and, and I remember it. And so I, I think anything honest and like you said, vulnerable will stay with you. Yeah. So what would you, um, for people listening who are, who are thinking of sharing more of their heart with the world or who have things that they want to say or do, but are, they're scared of how they'll be received, like what, what lessons have you learned along your process? I think you have to have a why that's so much bigger than you and your fears and everyone else's opinion. Um, for me, poetry, it's my tether to my heart, to all that is sacred. Um, so it's, it's my way back home to myself. And so it doesn't really matter if anyone reads it or not. I'll always do it to come back home to myself. So find your why. You know, what's your intention in writing it? And then that way, when someone either criticizes you or praises you, you can say, okay, I'm not doing this for them. Mm. Uh, and just write honestly. You have everything that you need in your life experiences to write a powerful poem. Mm. How did you find your why? Like, how did poetry find you? Um, when I was little, I had massive anxiety. Like I would have panic attacks quite young. Um, I'm talking like five, six, seven years old. I was super sensitive. Um, and my mom came in one day and like gave me this lime green journal with a pen. And it had this little quote that was like, 
life's not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's learning to dance in the rain. Um, I actually just found it the other day. It's crazy. But she just told me to write. And I and my mind would quiet and the anxiety would go away. And so from a very young age, like I said, it became my way home to myself. I don't think I could voice that or put that into words until much later in my adult life. But um, I've always just been doing it before Instagram, before all of it. And so when you were having those anxiety attacks at that young age, before you could verbalize what was happening or even understand, like, how did you, how did you cope with that? Like, I know the writing was crucial, but. Uh, I would disassociate, to be honest. (laughs) I just, how did I cope with it? I didn't. Um, I would go into my little imaginary world and, and disconnect. Um, I don't think I was fully in my body and, and I still am not a lot of the time, but um, it's a practice to stay embodied. It's a practice mm. to feel safe enough to be here mm. in this flesh bag, you know, um, it was far easier for me to disassociate. And I think we all have our means of survival as a child, you know, whether you withdraw, whether you react and externalize your pain um, when you're a kid and you don't know better, you just find your ways of survival. Mm. I remember, um, do you know Gabor Mate? This is a bit of a tangent, but Gabor Mate is this, he's this brilliant psychologist and he works in Vancouver with the homeless population and drug addicts. And he specializes in trauma and particularly childhood trauma. And he, he's super fascinating. I think you'd really like his stuff. Um, but he had this interesting take on ADD, ADHD. And he was suggesting that it might be related. And again, like, I'm not a psychologist. I can't vouch for this shit. But like, I think it's an interesting, you know, disclaimer, don't come at me on the internet with with whatever. Or do if you have evidence to disprove this. But he was suggesting that as as children, right, when we face significant trauma in our life, we are young enough that like we cannot run away. So it's like fight, flight, freeze, right? So you, you can't run away, you can't fight back, you can't really freeze because you have to do something. And so the way to deal with that was to change your perspective, what, what you were looking at, or to alter your attention. And so he, he was suggesting that ADD, where uh, an individual has a really difficult time staying focused on one specific thing, was actually a survival mechanism from previous childhood trauma to, to somewhat disassociate from the painful reality of then and just learn to kind of avoid it I thought that was just interesting it is and I can actually attest to that and say I think that's true because I was diagnosed with ADD at my school and put on Adderall Stratero Ritalin when I was nine like super young oh, shit yeah super fucking young so I do think it was my way of like disassociating and coping with my experience and, mm. and then they're like oh here's a pill like try this you know then you'll be the perfect robot in the perfect system yeah so you have some strong opinions about pharmaceuticals? Um, no, not necessarily. Like, here's my thing with Western medicine. I think it's amazing. I think it's valuable. I think if I break my leg, I'm definitely going to go to a doctor, <laughs> you know? Um, but I do think that there's a disconnect. Like, in Chinese medicine, if something's wrong in, like I said, you break your ankle, they look at your whole body. Um, they look at your energy body, your emotional body. They're looking at it as a system. Same in um, Ayurvedic medicine. But Western medicine, you only look at the one part of the body. And I think it's so complex and interconnected. And we're just not looking at the whole picture. And I think that it um, is also complementary. Like, it's amazing to use holistic medicine with Western medicine. So mm. my thing is just the whole ADD thing. I think a lot of the times kids are just put on on the drug like way too young and, and it's a strain of methamphetamine 
So it's just a very intense drug to be on to fit into a system to get good grades to then, you know. Yeah. And so what was your experience? Like you're, you're nine years old, you have years of panic attacks and anxiety behind you. And suddenly you're, you're, did you recognize at the time that you were taking drugs to be a different person? Did you feel better from the pills? Like, no, I, um, I didn't understand that blending in and belonging are not the same thing. So I wanted to blend in um, because I thought that would make me belong. And I wanted to just be like the kids in my school and be able to focus and get good grades and, and go to a good school. And, and my self-worth was wrapped in, in that. Um, but I stopped feeling creative. I didn't feel in touch with myself anymore. I stopped painting and writing and um, my anxiety worsened. And then I went through a period of depression. And honestly, it wasn't until I started dancing that I finally got a sense of self again. And that creative spark was kind of reignited in me. Um, and that's when I was like, no more medication. I'm done. And I kind of took a different path in life. And that was a conscious choice. Like you were like 10 years old though, or 12 or? No, I was on it on and off until I was 16 or 17. Wow. So from like age nine to age 16 or so, you were on drugs to help you cope with your anxiety and depression. Not anxiety and depression because I was diagnosed with ADD. Oh, okay. Yeah. But then at the time that you had the ADD, were you still feeling anxious? And Of course. I mean, that yeah. that not help with that at all. Um if you think about it it's an upper so if you're anxious you know you want to become more grounded and, and slow down internally um you don't need something speeding up your mind like a jackrabbit yeah yeah and so how did you like what are the ramifications of that time period for you like as an adult like what did you learn from that it took me a long time to unravel and unlearn and unbecome all that i had um and it was it started when I did my yoga teacher training. That was kind of the initial thing that shocked me into my body and woke me up. Um, and it opened the door into this whole world. So yoga was kind of the catalyst into sending me on this path of self-discovery and, and wondering how the world really works and not just kind of blindly following um, a system and learning to have a sense of discernment, really. So. Mm. And so, so what have you... What was that process? I just have like so many questions and they're all battering around in my brain right now. I'm like, I'm still focused on the um, belonging versus blending in aspect. I think, could you unpack that a little bit? How you differentiate between the two? Absolutely. So um, blending in, I think everyone does to a certain degree, especially when you're a kid. You know, you want to fit into the other kids around you in school, um, particularly high school. And so everyone ends up becoming more of the same. You also see it um, with this industry, even with beauty standards, everyone's starting to look the same now with like the same surgeries, the same lip injections, the same this. And so, um, there's a sense of like, if I blend in with everyone else, I will feel a sense of, um, whether or not that's a conscious thought in someone's mind, everyone's looking for connection, love and belonging. It's like hardwired in us as humans, you know, that tribal kind of aspect of community. And so I think that, um, we confuse the two and instead of going towards a sense of like, who am I really like, how do I really feel and cultivating that sense of discernment? We often just look at what everyone else is doing for the answers. Mm. And then the, 
the poisonous thoughts of like should and judgment come in, right? I shouldn't feel like this. I shouldn't do that. I should do this. And the confusion, I work with clients often um, doing coaching stuff and a, a really powerful question to ask is whose voice is that, right? That you think it's your, you get this from meditation, right? It's like, whose voice is that telling me that I shouldn't feel this way, that I shouldn't take that job, that I shouldn't wear that outfit? Like, what is that? Yeah, and we weren't born with that. Like, do you remember having that when you were two, three, four years old, you know? Exactly. Like when I teach workshops, I, I talk about exactly that. Like we come out as blank slates, right? We're empty canvases. And I used to work at a preschool and you give the kids um, finger paints, right? And they just run amok. Every, every two-year-old is an artist, right? And there's no two-year-olds who are looking over at little Johnny being like, oh, my art sucks. Johnny's so good. And there's no two-year-olds wandering the playground, you know, self-conscious about the size of their thighs because, you know, Jenny looks so fit in her diaper and, you know, I don't look so fit in my diaper. Like that shit doesn't happen. And so all of the insecurities and fears and shoulds, these things are learned, right? And to me, the process of life or the process of growth or evolution or expansion is identifying what those things are and then consciously deciding whether it serves us or whether we can try and unlearn that thing and in its place put something that is positive, uplifting, empowering, fun, right? Do you, do you, does that rant mean anything to you? Absolutely. That rant means everything. <laughs> I'm just like, I need to stop myself because I'm on quite a roll right now with the personal project. No, yeah. I love your roles. Keep rolling yeah. on. Um, I think that's so true. Comparison is not a thing when you're a kid either because you're just mm. curious about the world. You're in a constant state of wonderment. I think that's what we've lost as adults. It's like yeah. wonder, you know, um, figuring out how things work and, and kind of like experientially learning. And instead now, especially with technology and everything, it's so easy to spiral down the comparison rabbit hole mm. rather than like staying in your lane, focusing on your art and what brings you joy. And I genuinely believe everyone is an artist and a creative person. It's just whether or not they've used their gifts or discovered them yet. And so what would you say to someone that's like, oh no, Allie, you don't understand. I can't draw or like I am, I can't play guitar or whatever. I would say be a new student at it anyways, because I've learned that like doing something affects everything in your life. So I may write poetry, but if I decide to pick up playing the Native American flute, I guarantee you somehow it's going to make my poetry better. Um, it's a domino effect. And so I think being willing to be bad at something at first is so essential because what it does is it dismantles the perfectionism that we've been taught to kind of um, really contain ourselves in a little cage with. And so it allows you to break free. Um, and if you're a painter, try dancing. If you're a dancer, try photography. Just pick up something new. Yeah, I really love that, actually. I haven't heard that framed in that way before, that by putting yourself in a position to suck or to fail will consciously tear down the walls that you subconsciously have built around your life. Right? Yeah. Of like, hey, I need to suck at something. Like, what would be something fun to suck at so that I can, you know, experience that and remind myself that I'm not going to die. 
Yeah, something fun to suck at. Like I did that with cooking for a year. Um, I grew up eating cereal for dinner and the first time my boyfriend chopped an onion in front of me in Hawaii, I was like, what are you doing? Oh my God. And he's like, where did you grow up? Like, um, and I burned so many things and made the worst food ever for a year. And then I started to actually kind of get good and, and it was fun. And, but I just love the learning process. So you have to fall in love with the process. Yeah. One thing I love about sucking is, um, (laughs) This is an awkward sentence. Uh, but so what I was at, uh, I went to a rock climbing gym the other day and I've never really rock. I've rock climbed like once in my whole life. I'm scared of heights, but like my sister was doing it and we went bouldering. Right. And so you like, you like climb up these fake walls with these fake colorful grips and stuff and it's hard. And, uh, and I sucked and I told myself I sucked at least. And I was talking to my sister about it and I realized that, the, the power in sucking at something is that the potential for growth is so much higher when you suck compared to when you're really good, right? So like if you're really good at rock climbing, it's very difficult to see measurable, noticeable improvements in your abilities. Whereby when you suck at rock climbing, you could go for like twice a week for a month and be noticeably better, right? And that feels really good. And so like, you'll suck, yeah, at the beginning, but you're, like, you're not gonna suck very long. Even if you learn how to cut an onion, you know? It's progress. It's progress. I think it's being willing to be patient enough to have that progress happen. And I think that's the thing with instant gratification is you kind of want to be good at it now. Like you want to be an instant master at it. And it's like, no, be willing to fail for a while, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't even relate to things of a physical, tangible, th- Um, capacity like rock climbing or cooking it could apply to being courageous being vulnerable right like you might suck the first time you have a really vulnerable conversation with your partner but that's okay it's the same principles it's like the more you do it the better you get and eventually you won't suck nearly as bad as that yeah i mean that's kind of a weird kind of a weird tangent but yes It's an important tangent though, you know, I mean, we're not naturally conscious beings in relationships, I think, you know, if you look back to like caveman days, um, you piss someone off, they're going to get clubbed in the head most likely, you're not going to sit down and be like, I feel that I'm projecting this. (laughs) You violated my boundaries, Thor. (laughs) No, you're just going to get knocked out. So I think that we're kind of fighting like years of hardwired biology in our brains mm. right now. And, and so we have to be a little more self-accepting and compassionate. Yeah. And I think it relates back to what you said about belonging versus blending in, right? Caveman days, you're, you want to blend in, right? Because you don't want to get clubbed in the head. You don't want to upset your leader. I don't know how cavemen were organized, but <laughs> whatever the pack was, you don't want to piss off the alpha male caveman right? But this is a very different experience in modern humanity. Like, it's not as if you get kicked out of the pack and there's no way that you can find another pack. There's no way that you can find new friends or you're not going to starve, right? You can pick out your phone and find an Instagram pack. Make your own pack. Make your own pack. I like it. Yeah. Gosh, where were we before Thor interrupted us? Before Thor? uh, Learning to suck at things. Yes. Um, all right. I have to plug you in because my computer's dying. I'm great at this. That's okay. 
for those listening, Allie's just walking around her apartment right now. Yeah, great. Okay, you're plugged in. <laughs> okay. Um, what else? What's your uh, what's your writing process? What's your creativity cultivation process? Um, How do you think of ideas? I live my life. <laughs> That's the best way I can say it. Like, go, go live. You know, go, go meet new people. Get the plane ticket. Get in the car. Go see somewhere new. Um, you know, whether you're dating someone, then you can write about love from your experience. Or if your friend tells you a story about her life, you can get a poem from that. Like, inspiration is breathing and living everywhere. And so you just have to pay close attention to the way it's kind of forming around you. Um, but I think it was Anne Lamott that said this in one of her TED talks. She said, the difference between you and a great writer is they keep their butt in the chair and write. Mm. And so I think it's like showing up and just doing it every day, regardless of if it's good or not. Do you, do you do that? Like, do you have a set time where you're like, I'm writing from nine to 10? Um, almost every day. It's harder from traveling, but yeah, I'll, I'll wake up about an hour before I need to and just have time to have my coffee, write like five to 10 poems. They could be short, they could be long. Um, and I do the morning pages practice. I don't know if you've heard of that. No. What's that? It's from Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, which is like a workbook for artists. Mm. Um, and so morning pages is like right when you wake up and your subconscious is the most receptive and vulnerable. You just write three pages of anything that comes out. Um, it could be something that's happened to you, something you're feeling. You could even just say, I don't know what to write and I'm stuck. Um, but you have to fill three pages. And essentially what it does is it takes the trash out of your mind so that it's clear for ideas to actually come through. Ah, I like that. Yeah. And so you, you do that every morning? Like you wake up, like have a glass of water and just get your morning pages, like take out the trash. A glass of coffee, but yeah. A glass of coffee, yes. <laughs> a large mug of high caffeine coffee. Yes. Um, every morning I do that and I meditate. And those are like my two um, agreements that I've made with myself. If I get anything else in my morning routine, great. But those are the two I need to stay a good human. Ah, so those are like the non-negotiables. Non-negotiables, yeah. Yeah, like we're drinking coffee, we're writing, we're meditating. And that is it. Okay, yeah, I feel I feel similarly about my morning of like, when I don't get those things, because say I have to catch a 6 a.m. flight or whatever, the day feels off. Like something's not quite right. Can we talk about meditation? Yes, please, I would love to. Okay, what would you love to say about meditation? Um, You're a meditation teacher, right? Yeah, I uh, I did a teacher training in India for two weeks. Of course, uh, of course you did. What a cool sentence. Like, oh yes, meditation, uh, I trained in India and I'm a teacher. That's well, awesome. Has it ever, I don't know, I feel like so many people have trained in India. Um, it seemed like the place to go do it though, so okay. yeah. And what did you do? What did you learn? How did it change your life? It was two weeks long. It was in the Himalayan mountains. Um, Altitude sickness was real, but it was really cool. It was right by the Dalai Lama's temple in Dharmashala. Um, I might have pronounced that incorrectly, but essentially we'd wake up at 4.30. We weren't allowed to talk until like way later that day, but we would do um, three different types of meditation, um, mantras and chanting and breath work. And then we would do yoga for an hour, have breakfast. We could talk at breakfast and then we'd meditate 
the rest of the day. Like no exaggeration, eight to nine hours a day, every day, meditation. Um, Sitting on the cushion, doing the thing. Yeah. And we'd have little breaks, like lunch breaks and whatever. And then sometimes like one person would teach one, the other would teach, but they were at least hour long sessions um, for eight, nine hours a day. So it was a lot, especially for someone who had never meditated beyond Shavasana um, (laughs) yoga class. That's awesome. So how Uh, did you get from Shavasana to uh, an ashram in India near the Dalai Lama doing a meditation teacher training? It's kind of the way I do things. Like if I'm going to do something, I'll go all in and, and kind of make it a little hard on myself, but I like to just fully commit to the experience and immerse myself in it. Yeah. Um, so I basically found that and did it. And, um, and it was really great because it was the most fulfilled I had ever been. And yet I was completely disconnected from everything I thought made me, me, like my mm. friends, my family, my job, um, internet service, all of it was kind of taken away and I just had my breath and the ability to sit for long periods of time. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a profound sense of inner stillness. Mm. And what were the main takeaways for you? Um, I think the importance of slowing down was a huge takeaway. And, um, and then also like just awareness of my attachments. Cause you don't realize what your attachments are until you mm. feel the absence of them mm. like, kind of sense, like all the ways in which I was trying to fill the holes inside of myself. Um, and I kind of learned nothing's going to fill those holes except for either connecting in that way, becoming absolutely still, or I've also found creating fills those holes. So how does the stillness fill the holes? Because you're connected to everything, you know, and it's so hard to put into words without sounding like a bumper sticker, but you really are. (laughs) (laughs) You feel that sense of oneness that everyone brambles on about, but you actually feel it. Um, So it's realize that like, I'm good now without anything else. Like I'm here. I'm good. It's, it's all okay. It's all more than okay. Like it's, it's fantastic, you know, and, and you start to kind of, feel the miracle of life. Colors become brighter. Um, smells are sharper, you know, just the whole world becomes more beautiful when you slow down. Mm. Yeah. Why do you think it's so difficult for modern society to, to accept that fact as truth? Because it would mean dismantling modern society. It would mean that we have to find different ways of living rather than this kind of um, rat race of overstimulation. Mm. Yeah. Because I'm the same. I, I was resistant to meditation for many years. Well, for basically my whole life. Like, I used to make fun of people that meditated. Like, literally, you know? Like, oh, yeah. Go and sit down. Okay, yeah, that's going to definitely teach you something. The quiet nothingness with your eyes closed. Okay. Yeah, it's super practical. And then now, I'm like, full on. I'm on the, the meditation fucking train. I'm like, yeah, I've I'm doing a meditation retreat in England in like a month. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's Vipassana? crazy. What's that? Is it Vipassana? I don't, uh, no, no, no. Uh, I'm like teaming up with a friend of mine that's a meditation teacher and she's like going to do the meditation workshops and I'm going to do like the life belief workshops. And so we're doing like a three day thing. But that to me is so surreal because I literally used to make fun of people just like the person that I am currently. 
like that's that's how profound the transformation has been for me and i'm the same way it's like it's hard to describe other than to to really highlight the simplistic nature of existence that is at the core of who we are and that truly you don't need all this other stuff that we're convinced that we need like the, the things that we're chasing right like we're chasing all these things so, so that we could feel content and fulfilled and at peace and blissful and the reality is is the opposite is is also true like you remove the need to chase those things and all that you're left with is the bliss the peace the happiness the abundance it's like it's already there it's like one of the biggest paradoxes i think that exists oh it's the great cosmic joke i remember um my meditation teacher you know how um Hindu legends are just really gnarly a lot. Have you heard any? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, one that really stuck with me was he said, um, this Western guy goes to this enlightened master and says, teach me about happiness. Um, he's like, okay, come back on Friday. So he comes back next week and the master's sharpening this sword, this knife. And he's like, will you teach me happiness now? And he's like, yes, you must lose your head. And like, gets with the knife um and so it's like a really gnarly way of saying like you have to be able to let go of your mind and the overthinking because i think you only exist in your mind or you exist in the moment and you can't have both Mm. that's so deep that classic battle of the heart versus the head right yeah and and it's strange because we're a very cerebral culture like the ancient egyptians believed that consciousness resided in the solar plexus um but we're very heady you know, so it's interesting because I teach yoga nidra too. And a lot of the times, if you don't know what it is, you're basically having your conscious awareness travel to individual parts of the body. So like your toes, your toenails, your eyelashes, like these little details that we miss and watching someone go from not really being here to completely being embodied, they start to feel everything at once. And so it just goes to show like how much we really are in our minds. And so when those individuals are feeling everything at once, there would often be cathartic releases of some kind when they recognize that things were happening inside of them that they overlooked or hadn't even realized stress or anxiety or pain or trauma. Yeah. I've had people cry. I've had people yell. um, And yoga nidra is not, it's not trauma release. You know, you're just bringing them into um, a deeply meditative state. And Mm. so, but if someone's not really embodied a lot of the time and you bring them into that, they're going to start to feel everything that they were suppressing. Mm. Yeah. So like, what's next for you? Like on your, on your journey of self-discovery, so to speak, like you've done the yoga, done the writing, done the meditation. Like, where do you see yourself moving towards? Like, what's the trajectory? Um, I'm kind of debating between two different trainings right now. I did a cranial sacral training about a couple of years ago. So I might go back for my second year um, or I might learn hypnotherapy um, just because I love yoga nidra and it's just kind of scratching the surface of what you can do with the Mm -hmm. subconscious. So I don't know. I'm fascinated by all of it. I think it's all magical. Um, And there's so many different beautiful healing modalities out there. And I just, I always want to be a new student of life. So um, and so for someone listening that's like interested in, in learning or growing or, you know, shaking shit up, so to speak, um, what recommendations do you have for them in terms of 
finding the path or taking the next step? Like, what's your process for that? I'd say that everyone's path looks different. And so you're going to have to follow what you're curious about and what is exciting for you. Um, Like I started with books and just reading books about things that I was curious about, but knowledge will only take you so far, right? Like it becomes wisdom when you experience it. Um, And so I'd say like, go to events, go to classes, learn about things you're passionate about and find out the way that things work. Um, Because it's really learning to trust yourself and trust your own heart in that way, because your heart is connected to the infinite intelligence that we all come from. And so it kind of knows where to guide you, but then your head will be like, that doesn't make sense. That's not logical. And so again, it's just learning to have that deeper sense of trust on your path. And how do you cultivate that trust? By doing the work, by doing the practices, the meditation, the journaling, the yoga, you know, whatever resonates with you, whatever your practice is, Mm -hmm. um, pick something and be consistent with it. Yeah. I like that. Um, For me, in in my experience, I find that, so what you described earlier, the head is like shouting, like the the fear is shouting, the the worry, the anxiety, the, the what if this is the wrong decision? What if this isn't my path? Right. And the, the way that I've chosen to deal with that is to accept that it's all my path, right? That, if it doesn't work out, then I will have learned something powerful. That's the worst case scenario. I've learned a whole lot of stuff. Allie Michelle, what was that? I deleted the messaging <laughs> app. I'm so sorry. It's coming back from the dead to haunt us. <laughs> it was like, it was just reinforcing that point. Like, bing. Yeah, it was reinforcing. That's it. It was amplifying your point. Please yeah. continue. <laughs> it was that. It was- <laughs> <laughs> seriously i put it in the trash can on my computer i don't know i don't know either um technologically enough (laughs) ever (laughs) um it's that it's like being okay just starting anywhere right and if you don't know where to jump into the river you just freaking choose anywhere and you jump into the river and you try some shit and you suck and you get better and you continue to show up day after day after day when it feels fun and exciting or when it feels like a little bit difficult, but you know that it's good for you. And then after a while you mix it up, like you can always do something new. Yeah. I love that. I love the whole, like there are no wrong turns in life. Right. Cause I, Oh my goodness. You know, this is why everyone should be a jungle monk. <laughs> Anyways. Um, I think that's an important note because the perfectionism that we were talking about earlier can also say like, you know, you could make the wrong choice. So don't make any choice and just stay still. Mm-hmm. Then you become stagnant. So knowing whether you go right or you go left, like you're going to learn the same lessons in a different way. Mm. So how do you cultivate the bravery to make those hard choices in life? By doing it, there's no easy answer. Like you mm. see where you have to leap and you leap. You see where that stretch zone is, that edge that we talked about, and you just make the choice to do it because it's never gonna feel um, natural, shall we say, because it goes against um, the need to protect ourselves. You know, I, I always say like, there's a fear that keeps you alive and a fear that keeps you from living. And the fear that keeps you alive is the fear that when a snake bites you in the foot, you're like, oh, I should go to the hospital. Or like, you know, you see a car coming at you on oncoming traffic and you're like, I should get out of the way. 
Um, and that's a great fear. You want that. But the fear that keeps you from living is like, no, don't take that risk. Don't throw paint on the canvas. Don't do that. Like you're going to get rejected. Like everyone's already done this and that's just doubt. Um, and so learning to discern like which is which and making sure that it sits in the back seat and isn't the driver of your life is a really important practice. Mm. Yeah. I would say bring that fucker up to the front seat, let him get a good view and enjoy the ride. Cause you have the steering wheel, you know? Um, you reminded me though of, uh, I interviewed my buddy, Jamie Ray on, on this podcast and he's had this great line, which was, uh, fear should keep you safe, but fear should not keep you small. I like that. Good. It's what you, it's kind of what you said is like, avoid the tiger. Like don't get hit by the car, but at the same time, don't hide your gifts and talents with the world because you are doing nobody any favors, right? Be as big as possible. Take up space. Have an opinion. Voice your truth. Yeah, and it'll actually kill you in ways you can't imagine if you don't. If you leave an untold story inside of you, if you don't paint the painting and you leave the canvas blank, it's going to be massively painful because there are gifts inside of you that were put there for a reason. You wouldn't have those gifts if you weren't meant to use them. I actually went to this healer in Bali once, and she was the most intense healer I've ever been to. Um, <laughs> She said to me, she's like, if you have gifts that you're not using, it weakens your life force. Because mm. she said that you get like your life energy from being in flow, from using that creativity. And she said, like, if you think of creativity as a well, um, the well will dry up if you don't use even one of your gifts. So if I can dance and paint and write, if I stop dancing and painting, it still dries up the well from my writing. Mm. Like it's all interconnected. It's all a holistic part of the whole exactly Whew. so how do you balance that or how do you like do you do like an like a weekly assessment where you're like hang on i'm feeling off i need to dance or howl at the moon or paint or whatever what's your process yeah i mean it it sneaks up on me because i'll be like oh this is fine i haven't you know danced in a week or two i haven't painted in however long and like, it's okay. Like, I can get to that later in my life. There's more urgent things happening right now, but there's always going to be urgent things happening. Um, so you have to almost make a contract with yourself, a commitment. Like, no, this is important. This is essential. This is my life force. Like, I'm going to show up for this. Mm. It's like an, a new identity that you're writing for yourself. Yeah. And I think like, you know, if I asked you to commit to something that was really important to me, you'd probably show up, but we break our commitments to ourselves so much quicker for some reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's so much easier to disappoint other people. I said yeah. this yesterday um, to my buddy Traver, I think that like, if, if, if you and I say, say Ali, you and I had agreed that like tomorrow morning, we're going to meet at 5am and we're going to go up Malibu Canyon for a run. Right. And I, my alarm goes off and I'm laying in bed and I'm like, ah, I can't disappoint Allie. Like Allie's going to be there ready to run. But if it was just me, it's very easy to just for my ego to kick in and say, no, you're tired. You ran yesterday. Uh, wake up in another hour. We'll go twice as far tomorrow and play all these little games, right? And I think this is one, one thing that anybody can do to radically shift things for themselves is to find an accountability partner some way to hold yourself accountable, to commit and to be disciplined and dedicated enough that you do the thing. 
Yeah, I think that's really important. I um, I just did that with my son. I made an agreement that I'd write 2,000 words a week. And he promised me that he'd go to four ballet classes a week. And so we check in with each other. I'm like, have you gotten to class? And he's like, have you written your words yet? And um, mm -hmm. I think an accountability buddy's really smart. Yeah. Do you have any other tricks or uh, tips for, for getting your stuff done that you want to get done? I think doing it early in the morning before your brain figures out what's happening is really important. Like I wake up and I just do the pages and it's, it got to the point where I'm just like, Oh, this is what I do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not resisting myself anymore, but I had to battle resistance for a while and literally retrain myself to think like, this is as essential as eating breakfast in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just like making it enough of a habit. Yeah. And, and recognizing that, any new endeavor is going to be difficult when you begin. And that's just how it is. Like, and that's okay. And the longer you do it, the more persistent you are, the easier it becomes, the better you get at the thing. And then eventually you kind of just do it. It's just normal. You're just suddenly a person who journals every morning or meditates every morning. Right. And then there's that sort of indirect benefit whereby you look at yourself differently in the mirror. Like I meditate every day. I meditate every morning. Like I am a person who is worthy of self care. I'm a person who loves themselves and who commits to prioritizing the things that give me the best life possible. Like, and that's yeah. so powerful. And it's so important because if you go up against that resistance every day, then it doesn't get to have as much of a voice in the important moments in your life. But mm. I think it's training yourself in the small moments. Like I went to this ice bath for 22 minutes, my first ice bath. <laughs> um, the only reason I could stay in that long was I didn't know how long I had been in there for. I wasn't counting. I was watching my breath. I was focusing on the meditation. I was kind of just, I don't know that I was ignoring the feeling of cold, but I was just observing it. Um, and then my friend tapped me on the shoulder and he's like, hey, I think you need to get out of there. It's been 20 <laughs> minutes. And I freaked out and screamed and leaped out of the tub, of course, once I knew what had happened. But um, mm -hmm. the fact that my mind had no idea how far my body had gone was the only reason I could do that. Mm. Not that I recommend that to anyone, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Don't sue us. If don't sue us. Don't sit in a tub of ice for 22 minutes. Just but like, like that's some Wim Hof shit, right? Is that crazy Scandinavian dude that walked Everest in his in his board shorts or whatever it's like yeah, mind okay. over matter Wim Hof, that's how i did it oh that was at a Wim Hof training um no it was at my friend's house but he did a Wim Hof training in poland like he hiked in a speedo up a mountain mm -hmm. in the cold um so he taught me the breath work and then that's how that happened yeah i think even that just unlocks another idea which is our potential is so much greater than we often give ourselves credit for of like yeah. You know what I mean? Like internally, what we are capable of doing, achieving, being, becoming is so much more grandiose than we often think at any given time. Like, I think that's because we're so comfortable now, you know, like you can adjust the temperature in your home. You go to Whole Foods, there's 5 billion brands of the same product. Um, everything's at our fingertips now. So because it's easy, it's almost like other muscles, you know, energetic, emotional, physical muscles begin to atrophy. Um, now when we're thrown into an uncomfortable situation, we're just like, oh, I can't do this. I'm not used to this. I feel like you got a text message, Allie. No, no, I didn't. Nothing I happened there. I, I must be hearing things. 
I'm a jungle monk. You're just hearing. <laughs> yeah. So, so do you, it's an important point to like practice being uncomfortable though. Yeah. It's just, essential. I do cold showers every morning actually. Yeah. 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 Same. Of like just the process of choosing to put myself in a really uncomfortable place to me is like going to the gym. Like, oh, I worked that muscle out. And then at the end of it, oh, I did something really hard. And that becomes a rep. Yeah. You know? Those little decisions of like going to the gym, taking the cold shower, doing the things, Mm -hmm. that gives you the courage to say I love you first. That gives you the courage to put your Mm. power out there. And it kind of gives you a foundation in the big moments to be like, no, I actually know what this is and I'm going to move past this resistance. I, yes, like a hundred times, yes. Yeah, it's everything. It's, it's like training for life. You think it's about the cold shower. It's nothing to do with the cold shower. It's so that when you are in a relationship, you, what do you say? You say, I love you first. Yeah. Like, it's that. It's like ha- when your boss is being a jerk at work, you can stand up for yourself. Say, hey, no, you, like, you don't get to treat me like that. Like, because you're proving to yourself that being uncomfortable will not kill you and that you're somebody that can do hard things. Yeah, I think I think having that worst case scenario, like what's the worst thing that can happen? They reject me. Okay, are you going to die from that? No. Are you going to grow from that? Yeah, then do it, you know, and like walking yourself to that conversation because my mom always says like, you can't play life to not lose. Like playing to win means you're willing to lose in a sense, but playing to not lose means you're just doing what's safe and comfortable. Mm. And you'll never win. Exactly. It's an in-between. And like, what's worse than purgatory? Oof. That was a good line. Thanks. <laughs> I like that. You can feel it. What's worse than purgatory? It can show up on a long-distance love bombs post. Yeah, you're going to see that in 10 minutes before you post it. And I'm like, I just thought of this this morning when I was chatting. No, I, I agree with you. And I think a lot of the angst in modern society is because many of us are in purgatory and we either don't want to admit it or we admit it and we don't know what to do about it right and both are different forms of suffering yeah and i even liked your post um i'm gonna bastardize it so i'm sorry but something that was like um blaming the moon is an excuse or scapegoat scapegoat yeah will you read it um uh, i i don't have it on i'd have to do some things with my phone uh, but it was essentially saying your horoscope is a scapegoat the moon is a scapegoat like your past is a scapegoat your pain is a scapegoat the fucking the level of the tides is a scapegoat your horoscope is a scapegoat like like take some fucking responsibility for your life right um and i don't mean to say before you come at me on the internet that like those things aren't valid for many people and that energetically we get pulls from the moon and we're part of the universal cosmic stardust, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. I get it. What I'm suggesting is using (laughs) those things as an excuse or as a means to validate being an asshole or cruel or not responsible for the impacts of your own life decisions is, is not acceptable. Right. And I think that is one of the most powerful things that we can do as individuals is accept radical personal responsibility for how your life is going. Yeah, and I loved that post because I think that 
it's so true. Like this world is so much to swallow, but that's what finding the strength to be soft means. It's like mm. being willing to be accountable and be like, I'm human. I messed up and that's on me. And I promise I'm going to do better. You know? Mm. I like that you brought it all the way back to the beginning. Oh, this, you know, you got to circle back every this, once in a while. This feels like we, this feels like we just closed the loop. Like, oh, and, and Allie's new book is coming out this, when is it coming out? September? October 15th. October 15th. Um, where can people find you? Um, you can find me on Instagram at Allie Michelle L. Don't forget the random L. Um, What's the deal with the random L? It's so funny people ask this. I made my Instagram in high school, like freshman year. My last name is Lerner. And Allie Michelle was taken, so Allie Michelle L. But everyone turns it into like Allie Mitchell or Allie Michelle, and I'm like, it's really just Michelle. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But the so person who is Allie Michelle hasn't been active since like 2012, so it's gonna stay. Yeah, it's like part of your your uh, your trademark now, your brand. Don't forget the random L. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I have you in my phone because we had joked about it, and I just put you in there as like random L. Find your Jeremy long distance love bombs. So. Yeah, just in case one day I meet that random Allie Michelle, and I'm like, oh, hey. Um, okay, so Instagram Allie Michelle with an extra L. Your book uh, they can find through your Instagram. Yes, the rose that blooms in the night. Cool. And um, anything else you want to promote or 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 discuss? Like, do we miss anything? I don't think so. Um, but this was super fun. You're super fun. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. I um I adore your writing. I I um I'm often impressed by the like like the softness as strength element. I think really sums it up. Is oftentimes I'll read something and I'll both want to like hug the piece and also like do burpees with the piece. You know, yeah. like I like like yeah, that's that's badass. And then at the same time, I'm like, oh, it's like a a tender ferocity. Yeah, it's um that was way more poetic than the way I said it at the beginning of like ball squeezing someone without realizing they're being ball squeezed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love the way you said Perfect. that. Perfect. I was hoping you get another text. One ending too. How poetic. <laughs> um, you were a gem. Um, I'm so glad to know you. I'm so glad to call you friend. And um, and thank you again for just sharing your heart and soul with this world. It is it is changing things for the better. And uh, I just so adore you. I adore you. I appreciate this magical conversation, your bluntness, your amazing writing, the fact that you are such a fantastic interviewer that needs to be more podcasts like this in the world. So thank you, thank you, thank you. A pleasure. She's good, right? Isn't that fun? Lots of good one-liners, lots of big ideas, succinctly encapsulated in poetic verse. I enjoyed that chat. And as she mentioned, you could find her online at Allie Michelle with an extra L. You can order her book. You can pre-order her new book and just check out what she's putting out in the world. It's pretty cool. It's really cool, actually. That's all for me. Until next week, next time, thank you for sharing your life with me. I so appreciate you. And I wish you nothing but rainbows and sunshines and unicorns.